Welcome to Full Body Frequency, the one-hour weekly show that celebrates everything full-bodied and fabulous. I'm Laura Rice, cultural curator and your guide through the Full Body Frequency experience. This is the current through which we will explore the truths and explode the myths about the lives and loves of plus-size women. Since our lives shouldn't depend on how others see us, neither does this show. Full Body Frequency is the platform through which we will dialogue about moving through this world, fully engaged with passion and purpose. Our foundation, fashion, art, culture, beauty, health and wellness, travel, and love. Today, Full Body Frequency welcomes filmmakers, curators, and programmers to the show. Brooklyn-based Clarissa Clay and Chicago-based Floyd Webb will discuss their exciting new projects along with some of this summer's most anticipated independent, international, and diasporic films. As always, you can visit the Full Body Frequency Facebook page for more information about today's show. While you're there, make sure that you and your friends like us. Feel free to send us some listener love at fullbodyfrequency at gmail.com. And don't forget, you can listen to this or previous shows by visiting soundcloud.com forward slash fullbodyfrequency. We'll be right back with filmmaker, educator, artist, and programmer Clarissa Clay. Stay tuned for more Full Body Frequency. W-E-L-O-V-E 108 
Body Frequency is back, and we're talking micro cinemas, film festivals, and the importance of plus size women in the film industry. My guest, Clarissa Clay, is a Brooklyn born and based published writer, has received awards for her experimental film, In Remembrance, and is a co founder and former curator of Real Sisters of the Diaspora Film Festival and Lecture Series. She is currently the programmer for CC's film series at Calabar Imports. This film series focuses on issues in the African-American community through documentaries. Clay is also the founder of the soon-to-be-launched The Luminal Theater, a Brooklyn-based, site-specific microcinema for the historic Bedford-Stuyvesant community. Clarissa Clay, welcome to Full Body Frequency, and congratulations on both your successful film series and soon-to-be-open microcinema. Yes. The microcinema is called The Luminal Theater, and it'll be opening in Bed-Stuy. We're hoping for um, July opening. For listeners who don't know, what is a microcinema and why the luminal? A microcinema is versus like a movie theater that like has 15 or 20 screens. A microcinema only has usually one to three cinemas. Um, for us, we're only going to have one screen to project films. And the Luminal Theater, actually my business partner, Curtis, named it. And Luminal, just to give light to the African diaspora filmmakers. So Bed-Stuy has been the focus, almost a character in a number of films, including Do the Right Thing, Crooklyn, Dave Chappelle's Block Party, Notorious, amongst others. What are the factors for the Luminal being located in Bed-Stuy? Because there are a number of basically African descent artists, filmmakers. I mentioned all those films. It has a history of black community and basically saying it feels like home. Bed-Stuy, just a beautiful community. My family churches, they have it's um, a wonderful place that I've grown with and to see all these artists and to have a place where they can show their work is what we're trying to focus because the other microcinemas that are in Brooklyn and Williamsburg, Greenpoint, they don't focus on African diaspora films. So they might have like one show, but we want to have more than that and show the artistry of our people. So everything is dedicated specifically to films of Africa and its diaspora? Yes. Wonderful. 
Fun. We will show others, but that's the main core, and I'm so excited because that's the community that I've been with and love to have an opportunity to sh- show their work. Now, you've been an active member of New York City's cultural and visual arts scene for a number of years. Your contributions are considerable and include your work as a New York City public school teacher, writer, sculptor, and an award-winning filmmaker and programmer. What inspires both your love for the arts and for sharing your art and the art of others? First, my father is an artist, so he started me young, drawing. The type of drawing that I do is uniquely me. So I'm trained as an artist. And then it's my art part plus my politics. And politics started, like, from a picture of Emmett Till. Move, when they bombed Philadelphia. That documentary, and and I found out it was Tony K. Bambara and Louis Messiah from Philadelphia that did that documentary. I sat, I just sat, like, how could they do this? How could, could someone choose to bomb American people, choose to bomb people that look like me? And my politics have grown since I must have seen that film when I was, what, 10 or 11, mm. and it has always been the same focus to show how we are treated unjust. So you're listening to Full Body Frequency, and my guest today is Clarissa Clay. She is presenting the last in a series of four films, Thursday, June 18th, at Calabar Imports in bed Brooklyn's Cultural Nexus. In the same vein of sharing your art with others, you're presenting the final installment of your CC's Film Salon. One, what's the final film, what's it about, and why did you choose it along with the other three? The last film is Central Park Five. Ah. I fell in love with that documentary. I missed my cousin's birthday party just because gentlemen were there at BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music in Brooklyn, New York, and I had to see this film because anyone that's been from New- in New York during that time period, we was mesmerized at to how, and one, as always, like with the O.J. Simpson, the communities, the white community and the black community get polarized. The white community, yeah, he did it. Yeah, they did it. Donald Trump even took out this full page to say, like, calling them thugs, calling them everything, and anybody that read his ad that these boys were guilty. Right. And then the black community saying, no, there's something wrong. <laughs> this doesn't sound right. Yes, they were in the park, but they were at the upper part. And to get to the lower part where the person was, the female was raped, it doesn't make time sense to right. me. I wanted to see what happened to these gentlemen. And the documentary gives you from when they were young to where they are at now. And that's what I wanted to show. I just so wrong. <laughs> so wrong. Right. So they were exonerated, and the city paid them out millions of dollars in a settlement. And Donald Trump absolutely protested against it. And if I'm not mistaken, and you correct me if I'm wrong, he also was the one who helped coin that term, wilding out. The term wilding is actually older than Donald Trump, I believe. Okay. Um, they were actually saying that it was in history where they were, earlier American history, where they, I think they were using the word either to the Jewish community or the Irish community. Mm. It was used earlier. And that's the time period um, where in America they didn't like the Jews, that they didn't like the Irish, they didn't like the Italian, and they would use those kind of words with them, and then it got attributed to us. And I was like, no, <laughs> look at the racial undertones of those words. 
and then I'm, I'm looking at the money that they got, there's no way that it equates to their life. You stole their their youth. Mm-hmm. You can't mm-hmm. even pay for that. You're not even giving them the full amount. Bloomberg didn't want to settle the case. Mayor Bloomberg left to felt like on purpose not to settle this case, to prolong their agony. This is agony not giving them their settlement. They did, and they did their full terms in jail. Not like it stopped and they got out. Mm-hmm. They did full. Right. <laughs> so... That's one of the reasons it's because I'm passionate about it. It resonated so much. I wanted other people to know what had happened. That's why I picked it. And actually, when I look over the series, each film speaks to a hot button in the African-American community or the African diaspora community. Changing Faces of, of Harlem, directed by Sean Beatty, that's about gentrification. And all over from here to California, from, what, Alaska down to Florida, so I hope I got <laughs> northeast, west, there's gentrification <laughs> happening right. where basically the African community, the Latino community, the Asian community, any community of color is being pushed out of their areas in some kind of way. And then who comes in is basically white, affluent, rich, because they drive up the prices of the house. About two years ago, when I wanted to buy a house in Best Buy, can't afford it. It's what one point something million dollars, mm-hmm. and what is happening in this community? Mm. Gentrification. So that's one that I picked. That one. Two soulful junkies by Byron Hurt is speaking about what is also detrimental in our community is our health, and it was speaking about I'm diabetic. His father didn't change his diet habit and died and where we need a focus in our community and where we're buying from who is not giving us access to those kind of foods that we need what is it about proportion Byron Hurt shows how when you go to a soul food restaurant how they pile on food right right <laughs> to tell you the truth with his activism every time I watch the film I always say go get the soul food because it just looks so good <laughs> Kind of is doing the opposite of what it's supposed to be doing to you. Third film was Little Brother by Nicole Franklin. And black males speak about what they're seeing in their community. They have five different chapters. It's on FUBU um, TV. And I think I screened number two and three. Okay. And one takes um, place in Chicago. And it was just incredible to see such beautiful young males talk about what's right in front of them about killings, about this, about that. And you're like, oh, my God. Even before they get up to a level of being young adults, what is already shaping them, shaping their thinking, shaping their future? So that's the third one. And the Central Park one we just spoke about. And that's talking about also, I should say the words, Black Life Matters. So the whole series with different points, different issues that is happening in the community. That's really wonderful. And I'm really very excited about your film series and what you're going to do next. So after this break, we'll return for more Full Body Frequency with Clarissa Clay, whose fourth in a series of documentaries is being shown tomorrow at CC's Film Salon in Brooklyn. Oh, 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 oh,
just tuned in, you're listening to Full Body Frequency. My guest this segment is educator and award-winning filmmaker Clarissa Clay. She recently announced the official founding of the Luminal Theater, a micro-cinema for Bed-Stuy. Clarissa, you're a world traveler. What international film festivals have you attended, and are there any that you'd like to attend? Sadly enough, I haven't gotten a chance to travel for film Ah. outside of the United States. I've gone to Sundance. I would like to go to Burkina Faso for their film festival that focused on African films. You know, I always wanted to go to Cannes, so that's like a wish. Toronto Film Festival, there's one in Italy that I would like to go to. I would love to go to the Pan African Film Festival in um, California, like when it's happening. Mm. So there's a lot of lists for travel for film. Hopefully coming up soon. Hopefully coming up soon. Okay. I did mention that you are a world traveler. I wonder how much your curatorial and programming lens has been influenced by your travels, and how much will your travels influence the Luminals presentations? Both. I have world view, if we say the word African diaspora, that each country that we say is Afri- that connects to the word African diaspora is represented by a film in some kind of way and exhibit. So yes, it will always influence my programming. Traveling to other countries like Cuba, to Mexico, to Southeast Asia, those countries influence because you like to see a film about Fidel's film and then sit in the audience when it's screening and go, oh, I was at that beach. Oh, I remember that. (laughs) was a great experience. And to be able to tell stories from other lands is always desire and wish of mine. Especially at, I think when I was at Sundance, there was a film, I can't remember its name, but the politics was there. These Mexican women were being killed, and that they suspected was an American crossing over the border mm. and treating the life as though it was expendable, and then going back on American soil. Wow! Many Mexican women were being killed, and they were like, "Oh, well, maybe it's the Mexican police." And it was just so fascinating of a story. So I got a chance to 
on screen that film too. So all of that ties together. As I mentioned earlier, you are a co-founder and were a curator for Real Sisters of the Diaspora Film Festival and Lecture Series. Given your work with Real Sisters and living in a plus-size body, how important is it for women, specifically plus-size women, to be on the big screen and working behind the scenes as writers, directors, producers, curators, programmers, and critics? Multifaceted is um, correct response. One, as a person that is full body, to have me stand and, one, be called a programmer or a curator is something that's not a tribute to a person of color. Her browser let me know how important that is because in other institutions, I wouldn't have gotten that opportunity or that label. That's one. And two, to have that image in front of a large-sized woman commanding her space, showing her intelligence, showing her artistry is very important for others to see, whether they're young to old. Also, when I did my film In Remembrance, I was like the character that re- represented me. Her name is the actress is named Kiki, and she Kiki was like 13 or 14, but she's a large-sized child. And I said, oh, yes. This is exactly who you are. Mm. You, it influenced my lens because I want other people to see how beautiful we are. I said, here it is. <laughs> it's like she's not singled out. She's a character. Her image is in the film. Her image is seen. People are responding. Um, it, it was a film about the four girls that were bombed in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm. It was shot around the same time Spike Lee went and shot the documentary. Except for I did, it's called Experimental Film, my friend's Lebanese poem. I think the poem is something titled, Which Shoe Belongs to Who? Okay. And I made the girls come alive. That was really beautiful. That's why I like in Selma, when Ava did that, when the girls are coming down the stairs and then a uh, bomb goes off. We need to, to see that these were human lives, that mm-hmm. these were precious little girls. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's important. It's important to see ourselves on the screen and seeing what we can do behind the scenes. Speaking of women filmmakers, give me one word to describe each of the following. Kathleen Collins. Amazing. Um, Losing Ground is amazing. (laughs) I want everybody to see that film. OMG. I love the filmmakers of that time period because they wrote politically and forthright and without stereotype. Beautiful. Well, we're going to have someone who has worked on the film on Full Body Frequency soon, so I'm excited about that. Nice. Next one, Ann Bennett. Ann Bennett, incredible woman. Whenever I get a chance, sometimes I just stare at her because I really want to find a way to say how enormous of a person she is. She gives so much. Ava DuVernay. Another incredible sister. I'll give you one word. Incredible. Okay. <laughs> Julie Dash. Julie Dash, oh, my God, that's heart right there. Okay. Deb Willis. Deb Willis, another amazing woman, powerful, powerful images, powerful. Wonderful. Pearl Bowser. Oh, incredible. Erzon Palsy. Oh, I would say also another powerful sister. And Clarissa Clay. 
Power system. <laughs> so as we wrap up this interview, I just want to ask you two quick questions. What's your favorite film and what's your summer 2015 film recommendation? My favorite film has been The Test of Time, Daughters of the Dust, for its writing, for the multiple images, woman of color in it, the cinematography, and the absolute feeling that I got, as I always tell this story, stopped and started, turned my hand backwards and started kissing the back of my hand because I was like, this looks so beautiful on that screen. Mm. I was so validated on that screen. It's powerful. It's powerful. It's one of my favorite films as well. So what's your summer 2015 film recommendation? So it's called Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets. It's about the incident of Jordan Davis being shot by Michael Dunn in in Jacksonville, Florida. Michael Dunn is white male. Jordan Davis is a black male. And that's the incident of about, you know, rap music was playing loud, that incident. When Michael Dunn went and fired 10 bullets into the car yeah, of the yeah. teenagers. So they did it as a documentary. So it's going to be released June 26th. So I can't wait for that one. Wonderful. We'll have to put that up for Full Body Frequency listeners to go check out. Definitely. Clarissa, do you have social media that you have people tapping into so they can get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter, Clay Clay BK. Clarissa Clay, educator, award-winning filmmaker, and founder of The Luminal a soon-to-be-open micro-cinema in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Laura. Excellent program. Beautiful woman. Power woman also. Thank you so much, Clarissa. (laughs) To connect with Clarissa Clay, check her out on Twitter at Clay Clay. That's C-L-A-Y-C-L-A-Y-B-K as in Brooklyn. Clarissa Clay, CC's Film Salon, the Luminal Theater, a micro-cinema in Bed-Stuy. Please visit the Full Body Frequency Facebook page. And while you're there, don't forget to like us. After this break, we'll return with award-winning filmmaker and pioneering festival founder, Floyd Webb. He joins me to discuss Black World Cinema's upcoming programming, global film festivals, and his summer film picks. Stay tuned for more Full Body Frequency and some global hotness. Within your heart, you know that no one can change the path that you must go. Believe what you feel and know you're right because. The time will come around when you'll say it's yours. Believe that you can go home. Believe you can float on air. Right there in your heart Go ahead, believe all these things 
If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Full Body Frequency, and today we're talking film and summer film festivals. My next guest is a proud Mississippi Delta son. Floyd Webb was born in the city of Clarksdale and raised on Chicago's south and west sides. His extensive background includes global work in cinema, photojournalism, publishing, and advertising. His film credits include associate producer of the award-winning Julie Dash film, Daughters of the Dust, He's also been a local producer of the American Masters film, The World of Nat King Cole. He's been a producer and director of music videos, short documentaries, and 3D animation projects. Webb has worked with filmmakers such as John Acumfra and Spike Lee. Webb founded and was the creative director of the Black Light Festival of International Black Cinema from 1982 through 1995, the festival was one of the most critically acclaimed festivals of its kind. In addition to his film production work, he curates and programs Chicago's monthly Black World Cinema series. Floyd Webb, welcome to Full Body Frequency. Hi, how are you today? Good, great, thank you. Chicago is really lucky to have you. You produce the monthly Black World Cinema series, a showcase of seldom-seen classic features and new films from around the world that bring us stories with compelling content and a human dimension seldom presented in mainstream cinema. Tell us about the film you presented in June and what's coming up for July. The past week's film, you know, we do this every first Thursday. We've been doing it for 10 years. And last week we showed a film called African Metropolis, which was six films from Africa. These films were made by young filmmakers, by young African, Egyptian, Nigerian, Ivorian from Ivory Coast, and Senegalese filmmakers. Mm. They gave us a real contemporary look. You see a film about Egypt, and it's got nothing to do with demonstrations. It's got nothing to do with terror. It's got everything to do with a guy trying to play bass and get a record contract and ripping off his friends. It's like those kinds of stories. Then you have the Senegalese story that's about polygamy about temporary polygamy, about the younger wife and the older wife and the relationship that they form outside of their relationship with the husband. So there's all of these kinds of crazy films. Then you've got one about it, the imagination. This young, this young filmmaker in Kenya made a film um, that included UFOs and just a flight of imagination, you know, him fantasizing about a woman that he's watching through a rear window, sort of take off on a uh, Jimmy Stewart film. Okay. Know? So we get all of these kinds of interesting, interesting subjects. Next month, we're going to be showing the Academy Award nominee for Africa, a film called Timbuktu. July 2nd, right at 7 p.m. Right. At 7, yeah, right before my birthday, yeah. Wonderful. You're soliciting gifts? Yeah. Everybody, I want a gift. <laughs> I love apples. Okay. So make that an Apple MacBook Pro. out of an apple orchard Floyd (laughs) (laughs) tell us a little bit about Tim Buck and then the film that follows on July 12th 
Pyramid Code with Afrofuturism 849.com. Let me first say this about Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism 849 is another organization that I work with. Okay. And it's really an organization that deals with the ideas related to Afrofuturism, which is black science fiction, the African cosmology. And we look at how the imagination is used to bring things into reality. You know, Afrofuturism is sort of a movement that's kind of popped up in the last 10, 10 years among the uh, millennial children. Afrofuturism has always been here, but it was named in 1994. Ah, okay. But it's been resurrected, the, the whole idea of all those conversations, because of the Internet. Afrofuturism has sort of like come full circle. So you've got conferences all around the world. People talking about science fiction, talking about what Afrofuturism means or what it doesn't mean, and trying to get a good handle on it. So what we do is we try to present programs that present history and culture in a different way as it relates to science. The Pyramid Code is a film guy who died in the last five years. He was an archaeologist. He was always thought of as a quack, but he tells another story of the pyramids, about the history of the pyramids and what the pyramids were actually for. And that's what the Pyramid Code is about. Timbuktu is a film that takes place in Mali. That's going to be July 2nd. The uh, first first Thursday of July. This film is about the uh, Islamic extremists coming into Timbuktu after the fall of Libya and the murder of uh, Gaddafi. All of these Islamic extremists who had gravitated there, they were paid to go there basically to sow all of this disorder in Libya. They had to leave Libya once they de- deposed Gaddafi. They had to leave Libya because they're trying to bring some order back. So what they did is they decided to spread the jihad down into West Africa. And the first place they get to where they wreck a lot of havoc is Mali, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the whole deal is they, just, they go into Timbuktu, and they're initiating Sharia law. And they're doing things like outlawing music, outlawing sports, and it's about what happens. And particularly this one guy with a family who's just trying to do the right thing and makes a mistake and does something he shouldn't have done. I'm not going to tell you all the secrets. Okay, well, we'll wait. We're, we're definitely going to yeah. have to go see it July 2nd. And you should go to the website, blackworldcinema.net, blackworldcinema.net. Music plays a huge role in your presentations. As a matter of fact, you screen the latest African and African diasporic music videos before Black World yes. Cinema screening. In 1992, during your Black Light Film Festival screening of Oscar Micheaux's historic 1919 film, Within Our Gates, which until that screening, I understand, had never been shown in its entirety. Still wasn't in its entirety because okay. he cut it. This was still an edited version, right? Okay. Because when you do the research and go back, you find some parts of the, of the film from the reports and the reviews of the films in 1920. You hear people talk, uh, people write about scenes that are no longer in the film. Mm. Like there's a scene in the film where the this white character is about to rape heroin in the film. Some brother in the audience jumps up, unhand that woman. And the audience would have progressed. And that scene's no longer there. You no, know, that particular scene and the way that it unfolded, it's still there, but it exists in another way. Oh, wow. You know? Any clue as to where that footage went? Well, he had to cut it for almost every market he went into. Because he made preachers look bad. You know, he was showing black people being lynched. And so wherever he went, sometimes people wanted him to cut things out. He had to censor himself. It's a shame because he was making some really important films. It kind of broke him down. It, it kind of weakened him so that later in his career, he was making very soft films. But now what you screened was with a live cinematic orchestral performance. 
Edward Wilkerson and Eight Ball Souls. Right, and I was there. Uh huh. So talk about the film's historic significance and your decision to incorporate live music. Well, one, it was a silent film. The film was, was shot in Chicago, and it came out the year after the 1919 riots. So that's significant in itself in that it was a film that was political in nature and that spoke upliftment of the race. It's a real daring film. This woman has a school, and she's trying to raise money for the school to uplift these children, right? right? But there's no place she can get the money and where she lives, so she has to go she has to go to Chicago and meet this rich woman in order to to try to find rich donors to donate to the school. Pretty much the same thing Booker T. Washington was doing back mm-hmm. there. My great-grandfather was one of Booker T. Washington's fundraisers, and they would go from city to city talking about the school and you know, making little presentations and taking up donations for the school. And that's what she's doing in this film. Then all of this history unfolds, a lynching takes place, and these are all controversial things that nobody really wanted to deal with. Right. That's why I decided to do it. Now, at the same time, when Oscar Michelle premiered the film in Chicago at the, at the Armory up on 39th Street, okay. uh, 39th and Giles, I think that, that Armory is now a school, a military school. Mm-hmm. He premiered the film there with a live jazz orchestra. So I figured, well, why not? You know, so we did the same thing. It was an incredible experience, I have to say that. And anyone who hasn't yeah. seen Within Our Gates, you've got to see it. It's a wonderful, it's a beautiful yeah. film. It's funny, we showed it a few years ago, and what got me was how the audience was enraptured by it, by a silent film, and they had very strong reactions to the film. I was really surprised, because I was wondering if I was going to be able to keep the attention of, of the people watching, because it was silent, because it didn't have any dialogue, but they got totally into the imagery. So, as I mentioned in the segment introduction, you founded and were the creative director of the Blacklight Festival of International Black Cinema, which was one of the most critically acclaimed festivals of its kind. You also served as a programming consultant for the Rain Dance Festival of Independent Cinema in London, the Zanzibar International Film Festival, and the Black Filmmaker Magazine Film Festival in London. What are festival programming and content trends that have emerged over the past few years? I don't know what to say about trends, you know, because as far as I'm concerned, it's like, the films that I choose, the films that I find interesting and that I that my audiences will enjoy. So I don't really follow trends. You won't find a lot of trendy films in my series because they're going to be shown other places. You know, there's, you know, um, different films work in different markets. I show uh, independent shorts, but I always make sure that I get something really, really compelling and that suits the audience that I like to attract, mm. you know. And I try to make sure that it's multi-generational, mm-hmm. you know. So that it's welcoming to everyone, you know, so you won't find me showing like a lot of solely hip hop things unless it's really like on a positive side. But, you know, I don't show gangster stuff. You know, I don't I don't you know, it it would have to be really, really compelling. It would have to be something really different. What else can I say? It's the thing is find the best films I can and present them in a manner in which we have compelling open conversation where everybody gets to say something, you know, so I don't talk over them. Right. <laughs> well, it's too late for folks to attend this year's Sydney International Film Festival or the American Black Film Festival. A number of our listeners travel both domestically and internationally. So which mm-hmm. festivals, major and emerging, do you recommend? The Toronto Film Festival comes up in August. Okay. Oh, my God, there's so many. I'm trying to think. Toronto was the one that I would normally go to. And then usually, like, Berlin Film Festival, February, Sundance in January, um, the top 12 black film festivals. 
and I'll read them out to you. The American Black Film Festival, which takes place in New York. Pan-African Film Festival takes place in February in Los Angeles. Hollywood Black Film Festival, you'll have to check uh, hbff.org for the dates. Urban World takes place in New York. San Diego Black Film Festival, Black International Cinema Berlin, Pan-African Festival in Cannes, but that's Cannes Film Festival. You know, every time you go to a film festival, there's always like little side festivals that, that you can go to, too. The New York African Diaspora Film Festival is coming up this Friday at Facets Multimedia. Okay. And one film that everybody's going to really want to see is Nzinga, Queen of, Queen of Angola. Right. Uh, with 35 millimeter, beautifully shot feature film about the queen who fought against the Portuguese to stop slavery. Well, look up the top 12 black film festivals online at thefilmreporter.com, and you can get all the information. That's great information. So again, you're listening to Full Body Frequency, and my guest is filmmaker and producer Floyd Webb. During this quick break, be sure to check out our Facebook page, like us, and tell a friend. We'll be right back to talk more summer film releases and Floyd's upcoming film projects, Space Race, and The Search for Count Dante. Good evening. Do not attempt to adjust your radio. There is nothing wrong. We have taken control as to bring you this special show. We will return it to you as soon as you are grooving. Welcome to station W-E-F-U-N-K, better known as We Funk or deeper still, the Mothership Connection, home of the extraterrestrial brothers, dealers of funky music, P-Funk, Uncut Funk, The Bomb. Coming to you directly from the Mothership, top of the chocolate Milky Way, 500,000 kilowatts of P-Funk power. So kick back, dig, while we do it to you in your eardrums. For me, I'm known as Lollipop Man, alias the long-haired sucker. My motto is... Make mine the people. I want my fuck gun shot. <laughs> yeah, make my fuck the people. I want to get fucked up. I want the people. Yeah. Make mine the people. Yeah, that's the E-F-U-N-K, y'all. Now, this is what I want y'all to do. If you got faults, defects, or shortcomings, you know, like arthritis, rheumatism, or migraines, whatever part of your body it is, I want you to lay it on your radio. Let the vibes flow through. Funk not only moves, it can remove. Dig? The desired effect is what you get when you improve your interplanetary functionship. Sir Lollipop Man, chocolate-coated freaking habit form. Doing it to you in 3D. So groovy that I dig me. Once upon a time called now. Somebody says they're funk after death. I say it's seven up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 
I did. Let me put my sunglasses on. That's the law around here. You got to wear your sunglasses. So you can feel cool. Gangster lean. Y'all should dig my sunroof top. Well, all right. Hey, I was digging on y'all funk for a while. Sound like it got a three on it, though, to me. You know, I was down south and I heard some funk with some main ingredients like Doobie Brothers, Blue Magic, David Bowie. It was cool. But can you imagine Doobie in your funk? Ho! W-E-F-U-N-K. We funk. Body Frequency, and my guest today is Floyd Webb. He is the creative director and founder of E22 Digital, a multimedia company working as a producer, director of TV commercials, music videos, and producing for foreign film crews in Chicago. Tell us a bit about your next two film projects, Space Race and The Search for Count Dante. I'm actually finishing Count, The Search for Count Dante. 
Oh, congratulations. Uh, getting the last, well, don't congratulate me till it's done. It ain't, it, it ain't done till it's done, right, because I'm still raising the last bit of money for it. That film is it's about a Chicago character named John Timothy Keehan. And John was, was a little Irish kid from Beverly uh, who became a martial arts instructor. And he changed his name to Count Juan Rafael Dante. Why? Because his spiritual teacher told me that John was transforming himself into something along the lines of the Count de Saint-Germain or the, the Count of Monte Cristo, someone who was mysterious and able to move from place to place mis- mysteriously. And uh, But John was a martial arts instructor in the, in the very that's the first generation of karate people in the early 1960s in Chicago. Actually opened up his school in about 1960 or 61. But the problem was black people couldn't learn martial arts at a traditional school. You had to go to the YMCA or someplace. So the schools were discouraged. When John Keen opened up his school, he welcomed everybody, Hispanics, blacks, you know, all kind of ethnic whites. And he didn't care about your background. The cops were worried about criminal elements, learning martial arts. When it came to black or Hispanic people, all of them were criminal elements. You know, you, you could barely walk in a school downtown and start taking lessons. Except in the case of a guy named Mas Tamura, who was at the Jiu-Jitsu Institute, which was right by the L tracks in the loop. Because the train would go right by the school and you could look inside. When I was a kid, we used to ride around and you could look in that school, right? So John has a history with a lot of black martial artists, but also black boxers. His boxing instructor was a guy named Johnny Coolin, who was best friends of Jack Johnson. And Johnny Cooley used to train Jack Johnson. So Kean went from being this red-haired little Irish kid from Beverly to being this big muscular martial artist who changed his name to Galdante, changed his whole look so he looked like something out of a black exploitation movie. Big black afro, pork chop sideburns all carved up, wearing a cape, kind of cane, and walking a pet lion around Rush Street. So I want to just stop you here because I want people to know when you said that Count Dante was a character, he was actually a real person. It's a documentary about a real guy that I met when I was 10 years old. He had a martial arts school that was above Mr. Kelly's Jazz Club, and he was a hairdresser for Playboy Bunnies. He lived a multifaceted life, I tell you. And he died at 35. Ooh. Now what about Space Race? Space Race is a pet project of mine that I've been trying to get off the ground. It's about the first two black astronauts in the 1960s. Ed Dwight Jr., who was appointed to the space program in 1962 by John F. Kennedy at the behest of Harry Belafonte. Okay. You know, Kennedy was trying to get the black vote, and they were trying to figure out what to do with that. And they brought a bunch of people in, you know, top civil rights leader, including Martin Luther King, said, okay, we should make a black astronaut. Whitney Young was the one who found the guy to be the astronaut. King wasn't real happy about a black astronaut because black folks needed jobs, they needed training, they needed education, and he was like, space is on the back burner. But later, he changed up on that. This is all part of the film because when Star Trek came on, he saw the effect that Lieutenant Uhura had on the population, how she fired the imagination. She was going to quit the show because she couldn't get what she wanted on the show. Martin Luther King went to her and told her not to quit Star Trek. And as a result of that, she sort of heralded in that second generation of, of like black astronauts. The first generation in the 60s didn't get to go into space. The, the first one was Ed Dwight Jr. was 
was, was put in the program in 1962. By 1963, when Kennedy died, the day Kennedy died, and they were sure he was dead, they drummed him out of the program. Ooh. The next black astronaut was from Chicago, from 23rd and State Street, uh, and his name was Robert H. Lawrence. Okay. Okay, Robert H. Lawrence was chosen to be an astronaut in June of 1969. In August, he was appointed to a secret spy program. They were going to put him up in a space station. There was a special mission that he was doing, which was top secret, and it was run by the CIA. By December, he had died in a plane crash. What a loss. So he never went into space, and that program was actually canceled. The first part of the story is, why was it such a problem to get a black astronaut? When Ed White Jr. became an astronaut, it was like being an astronaut was like, you know, that was like the, the new cowboys, the new frontier, right? These guys were all celebrities. And NASA was Jim Crow NASA then, and he really wasn't welcome. And they made sure that they knew he wasn't welcome. Matter of fact, Chuck Yeager didn't like him at all because he was, you know, because Kennedy appointed him to the program. He said he didn't have enough experience, too many people. You know, he didn't like the affirmative action aspect. I was going to say he was an affirmative action astronaut. Ed White Jr. has a book where he writes about his life. Him becoming a jet pilot was much easier than becoming an astronaut. The guys, you know, all the white pilots, when he got into the Air Force, Everybody supported him. This was immediately after World War II. But 10 years later, he's got a problem becoming an astronaut. Plus, after Kennedy died, right, things kind of changed. And then it became, okay, one, he's too short. One, he's too light. We can't show his mama because his mama look almost white. You know, he suffered a whole bunch of different things that made it convenient for them to shift him out of the space program. The Inconvenient Life of Black People in America. That's what it's called. I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah, you know. And Edward is still alive. He's in his 80s. Wow. And he's a monumental sculptor. That statue of Mary Washington up on 47th Street. Wait a minute. That's that's the same Ed Dwight Jr.? Yes, it is. Okay. Real quick, Space Race is still in production, right? Space Race is still being developed. And if you want to get information about it or donate to the cause, you can go to space-race.net. Lloyd Webb, filmmaker, curator, and new media content director and producer. Thank you so much for joining me today. For more information about Floyd Webb, Black World Cinema, or his upcoming film projects, please visit floydweb.com and blackworldcinema.net and space-race.net. For more information about this show and previous ones, please visit Full Body Frequencies Facebook page. While you're there, Don't forget to like us and then share your summer film hits. This week's Plus One comes from pioneering African-American filmmaker, screenwriter, and journalist Oscar Michaud. We want to see our lives dramatized on the screen as we are living it, the same as other people the world over. Until next time, tune into your own Full Body Frequency, where large is luscious living. (laughs) 